Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of, uh, provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Aridai, and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's promises? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of, uh, uh, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pure, that is, lots, uh, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, 
and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly bound themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep those two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther bound them, and as they had bound themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honour of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. Can I ask you to join me and let's just pray again before we, we look at this. Heavenly Father, please come and help us now. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to the things that our hearts are thinking about at the moment. We pray, Lord, that um, you would unite our hearts to fear your name this morning. We pray that you would take up every dead part of our heart and make it sing a chorus of praise to you. And we pray, Lord, that our time in your word would cause us to be satisfied in your steadfast love. And especially if we're here this morning and we are perhaps experiencing a period of sadness and sorrow and mourning, that you will turn that time into gladness as we gaze upon your steadfast love for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I wonder how relieved have you been and how scared have you been? Those questions are related. Um, the more uh, scared you've been, the more relieved you've been. So maybe you've been a little bit scared about something. Maybe you were trying to catch a train or a bus and you thought you might miss it and then you just managed to catch it. You were a little bit scared and you were a little bit relieved. Neither catching the bus um, and finally uh, worrying that you might miss the bus and then catching it were, were a big deal. So it didn't matter that much, yeah? Or like most of us, um, you've maybe at one point or another you've uh, lost your mobile phone. We've all done that at some point, haven't we? And, um, and then you find it. Um, not a great big deal, really. Um, well, certainly not if it's my phone. Perhaps it's different if it's yours. Um, but n not much of a worry um, to begin with, and so not a great relief at the end. Yep, yeah? agreed. 
But then there are times when that's different, and there are times when we can be very, very, very scared. Um, so maybe perhaps it's a, a diagnosis of um, an illness, um, and it's life-threatening, for example. Um, or maybe it's something else that, that, that you're thinking of at the moment, and it makes us feel very, very, very scared. And then in God's goodness, that scare passes, for whatever reason that might be, and we feel very, very, very relieved. Agreed? So, I think that's kind of what's going on in this passage um, this evening. Um, Ian spoke to me earlier and he said, well, actually, um, it's quite straightforward what this chapter is about. Um, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Um, and, um, but I think if we take a big step back, essentially what we've got here are a people who were very, very, very scared. And then at the end, they're very, very, very relieved. And, you know, hey, that's our story. Um, it shouldn't surprise us that this story here is um, foreshadowing the greater rescue story, which is our story. Um, were we to be able to comprehend the, the horrors of hell that would await us were we outside of Christ? We would be very, very, very scared. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ has come for us and he's taken our sin upon himself and he's given us his righteousness. And that sense of relief and rejoicing and celebrating that we see in this story here at the end, particularly, I think is the sense of relief and rejoicing that we ought to feel too when we think about that greater uh, rescue that we have experienced. So, this is a story that is foreshadowing our story. Um, and we've already seen examples of that, and we'll see them again um, today, hints um, within the story of the greater rescue story. So, um, for example, somebody steps in to plead on behalf of a people under sentence of death. Well, that's Esther in chapters 4 and 5, but doesn't that sound like the Lord Jesus Christ um, to you? Or how about an unrecognized nobody is promoted within the kingdom and then receives a name above every name, um, that at his name every knee should bow uh, and praise him. If you open your Bibles at um, Esther chapter 10 and have a look down at that now with me, we won't be spending a lot of time in, in chapter 10, but just look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10. Look how it, Mordecai is exalted at the end of this chapter. And here again we have this um, foreshadowing of the greater champion than Mordecai who would come um, for that greater rescue uh, of which we're beneficiaries. So Esther and Mordecai in the story of Esther are in different ways foreshadowing 
Jesus. And this shadow, this story is foreshadowing our um, great rescue, the great reversal at the cross. So, as we go back into the story, we're going to see, I hope, a very, very, very scared people become very, very, very relieved and find hints of our own dramatic reversal story in their story. Um, that's the plan. So, um, we, can, we can move off that now. Thank you. So, please have a look uh, now at uh, Esther chapter 9. And actually, I want to start by asking you to look at the full stop at the end of Esther chapter 8, <laughs> just on the verge of tipping into chapter 9. Um, what can you squeeze into a full stop? Or what can you say about a full stop? But what could you squeeze into a full stop? Well, if we could see the next slide. Uh, this fella here has managed to um, squeeze these two beautiful pictures into something smaller than a full stop. On the next slide, you'll see those are the pictures on a watch mechanism. Um, and uh, that's those, uh, those sections are smaller than a full stop on a page. And we, if we go back... Wow, isn't that incredible? Look at the detail in those pictures, squeezed into a something as small as a full stop. What can you squeeze into a full stop? Well, back into our story. Sorry to distract you from that. Back into what we're looking at. Look at that full stop there at the end of chapter 8. What's squeezed into that full stop? Well, I want to tell you that what's squeezed is, is nine months because chapter 9 begins now in the 12th month. And chapter 8 has been all about things that happened in the third month. So effectively, in that full stop, we've got nine months. Nine months of good news. Nine months of, of gospel proclamation, if you like. Nine months when the people across the kingdom could switch sides and change their minds. Um, and I want to suggest to you that those are the days that we live in today. These are the days of good news gospel proclamation where we can hold out the good news and, and we can say to people, don't stay there, switch sides. Come and join the king that we've just been singing about. The one who reconciles us to God at the cross. So that's what we have there in... Uh, at the beginning. But then it, the first sentence begins, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And that word reverse, can you see reverse? Reversal is what we're talking about here. I want to suggest to you that what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is too good to call a rescue. Um, you and I are beneficiaries of a, a reversal. It's better than a rescue. And to illustrate, I just want to take you to the book of Revelation and the passage that you will have heard many times when, for example, it talks about every tear will be wiped from their eyes. And it's talking about a reversal. It, it, it's talking about it will be as though those awful things never even happened. 
And that is what we're talking about when it comes to our rescue and our salvation. It's a reversal. Um, uh, rescue is, 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 is almost not enough um, for what we, uh, what we have experienced. Um, and uh, I think we've got another slide here now. Um, I, did a bit, I did a reversal um, a few weeks ago. I came to church with my uh, T-shirt on inside out. Um, some of you will know the story of that, but it's, it's a long and boring story. But um, So, inside out. And, you know, this picture here, uh, a famous picture, has been hanging in a gallery for 75 years, upside down. Um, so, if you look at the next picture, that's, that's the right way up. Um, amazing, isn't it? Inside out, upside down, and back to front. And I want to say to you this evening, behold the kingdom of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't we belong to the inside out, upside down, and back to front kingdom? And it's wonderful, isn't it? Because everything you think should happen doesn't. And everything you don't think should happen does. And it's absolutely glorious. That's the kingdom of God. So I just want us to spend a, a couple of moments looking at a couple of examples of this. So can you turn to Matthew chapter 11? And if you've got a church Bible, that's on page 816. Let's just, let's just dwell for a moment in the inside out, upside down, back to front kingdom of God. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. I don't know how you're feeling as you're here this evening, but are you looking for something or someone who can turn things upside down in your life? Maybe that's what you feel you desperately need. Do you know, you've come to the right place. You need Jesus. Jesus is the one who can do all of that, inside out, upside down, and back to front. That's what he can do with that thing that you're thinking about. Or come back with me a few more pages to uh, just uh, flick back to Matthew chapter 5. That's on page 809 if you've got the church Bibles. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I want to say to you, believer, this evening, be encouraged. If you are trying to live in the upside down, inside out, back to front way of the kingdom of God this morning. It's hard. It's hard work, isn't it? But be encouraged because the Lord Jesus Christ says that's, that's the kingdom way and blessed are you. Blessed are you as you try to do that. Because Jesus turns graves into gardens. He turns seas into highways. Jesus turns mourning into dancing and he turns shame into glory. 
And he's the only one that can. He's the only one that can. But going back to 500 BC and Esther, and verse 2, which is where we've got to, and we read, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. I don't know what you make of all of the killing in these chapters, and there is quite a lot, isn't there? Um, Well, look what it says there, to lay hands on those who sought their harm. So we need to say right at the outset and remind ourselves again, this is self-defence. This is not revenge. This is not random killing. It was for these people, kill or be killed. And another word about these killings, these executions in Esther are one-off. They are necessary in God's history, but they're unique, never to be repeated. Properly understood in God's bigger salvation story, they're an anticipation of final judgment. Because, of course, the cross changes the way Christians respond to all manners of sin that comes at them. We follow a path of suffering now, glory later. We return blessings for curse and forgive. We remember that vengeance is God's and not mine. And it's precisely because of these things that many brothers and sisters, uh, which have really hard stuff coming at them around the world, bear it patiently. And we will uh, remember them in our prayers at the end. We should remember them this evening. Um, So the Jews win, verses 2 to 5. And I just want you to notice in 2 to 5 although I'm not going to read it all, uh, how important Mordecai features in this. Can you see how often his name is repeated? You see, this great reversal that's continuing here and happening in these chapters all depends on Mordecai. Um, Just as our great rescue all depends on Mordecai's greater champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's really important here. And Jesus is really important um, in our story. We may struggle to read, uh, as we do in verse 5, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. It might sound a little bit like bloodlust, the way we read that, uh, but I don't think that's right. Um, I think it simply means that the killings occurred without interficial, sorry, without um, sort of the interference of of officials, Because as we can see down there, the officials too uh, honour Mordecai. And so they don't um, uh, try to interrupt the second edict uh, as as they might have done. And then in verse 6, we see that um, although they had nine months to change their minds, in the capital itself, in the palace compounds, there were still 500 people who were hell-bent on murdering God's people. Um, And so their removal makes these people very, very relieved. Very, very relieved. It's hard for us to imagine in um, in in the society with the good government that we have here, it's very hard for us to go back to 500 BC. But these were people living on their streets, 
next-door neighbours, and they would be very, very relieved. And then in uh, verses 7 to 10, as we've already seen, the uh, sons of Haman with unpronounceable names are killed. Probably they shared their father's hatred, uh, and in that way they remained a constant threat. And isn't it striking at the end of verse 10 that they laid no hands on the plunder? Did you see that? Um, It was exactly what their enemies were given permission to do to them in chapter 3, verse 13. And it's actually what the Jews themselves were permitted to do in chapter 8, verse 11. But instead, there's a sense in which they do things right here, not for selfish gain. And of course, it's another reminder that these killings are in the bigger salvation story come to anticipate final judgment, um, which has got everything to do with God and it's got nothing at all to do with you and me and selfish gain. So I think that's what's going on there. And, uh, and then in verse 11 and 12, we get the half-time score. And were you a bit surprised by Queen Esther's response when the king said, yeah, what should we do tomorrow? And lovely, sweet Queen Esther says, let's kill some more people. Seems a little strange to us again, doesn't it? We need to think about that. Um, I think we have to remember that um, this is what's going on in the capital, in the palace. And Esther is an insider in the palace. She knows there are 800 people who are um, hell-bent on annihilating her people. So she does the maths. Um, and she knows what's, uh, what still needs to be done. Um, and, uh, and she gets that done. And then in verse 16, we get the final score. 75,000 people out of a population across the empire of about 50 million, something like that, I guess. A lot of people, but as we come to the end of that bit, a lot of very, very scared people are very, very relieved as we come out of that. And the rest of the chapter is mostly about remembrance, um, about how they remembered this wonderful reversal that had um, taken place. And if you have a look at some of the, uh, some of the, the words that are emphasised and repeated again and again, we've got, for example, um, days of feasting and gladness. Um, in verse 17 and again in verse 18 day a a day of feasting and gladness and in verse 22 over the page um, this situation has turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday a people who were very very scared suddenly very very relieved and um, they institute a festival called Purim after the word, the Hebrew word for dice, pur, because you remember that it was the rolling of the dice that determined the original edict and the terrible fate that the people um, stood under. Uh, and I want you to notice that that's a very ironic uh, name for this festival, um, for this bank holiday, let's call it a bank holiday. Dice Day what was the name of the bank holiday. Dice Day. Dice Day, it's very strange, isn't it? Strange to call it that. Um, It's very ironic. Um, Like rain on your wedding day. Or a free ride when you've already paid. You recognise the 
the, the cultural reference, let the listener understand, okay. But it's very ironic, isn't it, that they should choose a, a title of, a, uh, of the dice when actually, of course, the whole, idea, the whole point is that God was working even behind the dice as people were trying to move away um, and use things like dice to roll the terrible fate of the people. Um, yet God was, was behind it. Um, and I want you to see in that too, um, and perhaps we could look at the, at the last slide there, um, the incredible irony in these which we use today to remember our greater rescue and reversal. Um, the wine, the, um, the symbol, the wine is a symbol of blood, of Jesus' blood, and the bread, a symbol of his body broken. Uh, these are symbols of death, aren't they? Um, oh no, these are symbols of life, eternal life. And there's a real irony, isn't there, in the same way as we think of the wonderful remembrance that we have um, that helps us to remember the great reversal that we are uh, beneficiaries of ourselves um, they obligated themselves to remember it forever. And when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because the great reversal that has taken place at the cross guarantees the final rescue. Uh, and this is where we're going to finish. Let me just say that again, though. We, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because the great reversal of the cross guarantees your final uh, rescue. Um, you see, Esther is a, a story of people in exile. And the people, and the question, the big question for people in exile um, always was, will God's promises still stand? Remember, people in exile are people who've been sent away from the promised land because of their sin. So the big question over their lives and the whole story is, will sin destroy the, 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 the promises of God? And we, you and me, are still in exile uh, until he comes again. Um, and it's as natural for us as it is for a fish to live in water, to be troubled by that same question today. Can God's promises to me be broken? Um, or does the cross really guarantee my final rescue? Can I actually sin my way out of God's heart? And I know we would often say, well, no, I'd never think that. But whenever we ask a question of ourselves like, am I doing well as a Christian? Or I don't think I'm doing all that well as a Christian. We don't say it to anybody, but we think it. Or if we start comparing ourselves to others, or we become fretful and irritable about our situation and our lot, or we, we become angry in a low-level sort of way or frustrated and irritated at our circumstances. It's all coming from a heart that doubts, that doubts the intensity of white-hot love that the Lord pours out to us moment by moment. And it's hardly surprising because all of our relationships are conducted on that basis. Um, we, we love others because they love us and uh, it's, it's always conditional, isn't it? Um, but it's the emphatic message of Esther, and it's the consistent message of the Bible. 
Christian believer, God has pulled you into his heart and you can't sin your way out of it. There's nothing you can do to sin your way out of it. And I know it sounds inside out, upside down and back to front, but of course that is the great reversal of the gospel. So to finish, in faith, turn back with me to the first verse of chapter 9, and I think we can kind of, this is a kind of summary of all that I've said, bringing it all together. Um, and if somebody says to you, what was tonight all about? You can just remember this, if you remember nothing else. Um, I think we could sort of rewrite verse 1 and rejoice in this. This is glorious truth uh, for us. Um, where it says, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hope to gain mastery over them, um, I want us to think at the very point, at the very moment when sin hopes to gain, my sin hopes hopes to gain mastery over me. And you need to say that for yourself. What, what, What do we see happening? The reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. Because Jesus Christ died for that sin. And he is my righteousness. And he is your righteousness. So you can say the reverse has occurred and he who died for me will keep me and hold me fast. Or in the words of the song that we're about to sing, um, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more, isn't it? 